have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to take it and turn to the book of Mark. Chapter 4. We're going to look at a very, very, very familiar parable that many of you have heard many times. And I love it when Jesus tells a parable and then later he gives the interpretation and I don't have to worry so much. I don't have so much work to do. Um, instead of me trying to decipher what he's trying to say, he tells me what he's going to say. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. You know, many of us wonder, I know I do, how, why someone can hear the gospel, seem to even be able to repeat it back to you what it, what it says, but they really don't believe it for their own forgiveness. Well, Jesus reveals during this discourse about the parable kind of why that happens. And, and it exposes the vast sovereign will of God as to what God's doing. And we don't always understand it, but we must accept it when it comes to regarding uh, salvation and lostness. So let me read this entire passage to you, and then we'll kind of dissect it a little bit. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down. While the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore, he taught them in many things, in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly, since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased 30, 60, and 100 times. And then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve Ask him about the parables. And he answered them, The secret to the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables, so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. And then he said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And others are like seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They're short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word. But the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seeds sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we look at this and 
help us in our own hearts grasp concepts that are revealed only to those who understand your will and understand your sovereign purpose. That all things that happen, good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter, they all are meant and will in some way and in turn and in time bring you glory. Help us to understand that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, kind of back up in chapter 3 to give you a little context here, what's going on. After Jesus' encounter with his family, they came to take him away, and then he confronts the Pharisees, or the Pharisees confront him, and he pronounces the unpardonable sin on them in chapter 3. He, Jesus now begins to teach them only in parables. He begins to teach the crowd in general, not his disciples alone, but the crowd in general in just parables. And chapter 4 records some of the teaching that Jesus did. Now, Mark, Luke, and John, they record some big sections of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount and a whole bunch of others. Um, but, but Mark doesn't record so much of the discourse that goes on or the lecture that Jesus gives, but they record... He records it here in chapter 4. And the, here in chapter 4, the need to hear and respond correctly to the Word of God is the emphasis. So this parable, and the reason for this parable, and the reason for parables, and the interpretation of this parable will drive home the point that Jesus' message will be rejected by some. Rejected by more than we would wish it would be rejected. So Christ is illustrating with this parable he illustrates exactly how human souls will respond to the gospel and why most will probably reject it, at least on initial hearing. So what determines these predictable responses that Jesus seems to not be surprised by as he tells them the story? Well, one secret creates the responses to God's wrath, truth, the man Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at all of that in a minute. But let's look at the parable first. The parable... Is interesting. Jesus taught by the sea again. He's done this already several times. He goes out into a boat to kind of sit on the, the water to keep the people back. So they're kind of like an amphitheater. And I've been to a place where they think Jesus taught either the Sermon on the Mount or something. And the acoustics are great. They're as good as they are in here. I mean, I don't need a microphone. You could hear from the standing on the seashore all the way up to the top of the hill by the Sea of Galilee. So it's just an amphitheater, basically. And he sat down in the boat, which is the traditional way of teaching. And so he's, he's got a large crowd gathered on the seashore listening to him. Now, Mark continues to emphasize the large crowd is following Jesus around. And you kind of go, well, okay, we got it, Mark. But he does it a lot. And I think the reason he does it is because we're going to see a tension build between Jesus and this crowd. Not Jesus and his ten disciples necessarily, not Jesus and some of those that decide to follow him outside the twelve, but the crowd in general. We're going to see it build until he's crucified. And so I think this is just Mark's way of continuing to emphasize that regardless of how big the numbers is, regardless of how full the seashore is, some people are going to reject the message of Jesus Christ. And he continues to want to pursue that, as well as the tension between the Pharisees and even the government, Herod and Rome. So, what are parables again? I'm, I'm going to kind of define this because I know we, we as Americans don't use parables. We, we call them word pictures a lot of times. They're just illustrations. They're extended analogies to make a specific spiritual point. And, and they're drawn from everyday life. 
And they're meant to communicate some important truths. At least in Scripture, that's, a, that's the best definition for them. So Jesus calls them right here at verse 3. Listen. It's an imperative. He's not giving them a choice. He's not suggesting. It's not passive. It's an imperative. Command. Listen and consider is as well. Consider. Behold. Take note of this. He's very direct with them. This is very important. And if not understood, they miss the whole kingdom of God, which is not what he wants. Now, most will walk away from this parable after we, you, we read it and, and realize they don't have the insight we have. They don't have the explanations we have. They don't have any commentaries. They do not have the New Testament yet. So they don't know what Jesus is talking about. And they're going to walk away and they're going to say, I don't know what he's talking about. They understand the story because it's an agricultural culture. It's an agricultural community. They understand the story. They don't understand its meaning. They hear just the parable. Sower sowing, agriculture. So it's not an uncommon thing. It communicates to them something. Most of them go, oh, this is easy to understand. You know, birds eat seeds. Rocky ground doesn't grow crops. Thorny ground is bad for farming. They understand that. They understand that shallow roots and a scorching sun, insufficient water and soil all make for bad crops. They understand that. They got that. And good soil makes for good crops. They understand poor production in those kind of places. They understand that not all seeds germinate. They don't always find soil. Now, something to understand about first century farming, I mean, we got it all around us. And you see the farmers, they just plant directly into the ground. They don't till the ground. They don't sow. They just put the seed in. That's not the way they did it in the first century. First century, they scattered the seed first, plowed it second. They put the seed under the dirt second. So, and it wasn't in nice, neat little rows like we're used to. It was, it was random. So this might be a good field, and there's thorns around it. There's rocky soil around it. And they just scatter the seed, and then they bring the plow to it. Now, a lot of these little fields, and we think, and we, we have to catch ourselves because we think of these monstrous fields that, that are a mile wide and a mile long or longer or bigger. This is a little patch most of the time. It's not huge areas. So... There's rocks and thorns, and there's an area prepared that they used last year, and that's kind of how first century farming went. And the key for us to remember is the seeds are not put under the dirt until after they're sown. Now, there's four soils here. There's the path soil, which is hard packed because paths run through these fields because they, they allowed that. So this soil would be packed down. It's never going to be tilled. It's never going to be ready. And the birds come immediately before the plow is even pulled out of the shed and take the seed away because that's what birds do. And then there's the rocky soil. Now, I've been to Israel, and there are plenty of rocks in Israel. Matter of fact, around the Sea of Galilee, there's big rocks in the field, and they're just one right after the other. And so to prepare a field for crops, they'd have to move those. Well, they don't have a bobcat. They don't have a skitter. They don't have anything like that. They would have to manually move those. And, and so there, it was a lot of work to prepare soil. So they had rocky soil. But some of this rocky soil wasn't even, the rocks weren't seen. I mean, it was probably just under the soil. The sower didn't know what was there. He just kept scattering seed. So the rocky soil, the thorny soil, the weeds may actually be young or they may actually not even be poked through the ground yet. But they come up with the seed and they choke it out. And then there's the good soil. And it's obvious probably to the, the, the sower initially that he's sowing in the good seed. But, you know, if you've ever sowed anything, you know you're not pinpoint. You're not a, a major league pitcher hitting this right spot every time. Seeds go everywhere. 
But the sower is casting the seed on that ground, and he has no real expectation of whether it's going to grow or not. He's seen it grow in the past, but he has no real expectation. He's, he's sowing in good soil or on top of good soil. And so Jesus is teaching a very crucial point in this parable for the crowd and the Pharisees to hear. It's a very crucial point. So he says, to make that point, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him listen to it. Because he's speaking truth about his ministry. See, the question mark is running around in their heads of, okay, so who is Jesus and why is he here and why is he doing what he's doing? Well, you've got all kinds of varied opinions. He's, an, he's the Messiah who's going to be the reigning king like David and defeat Rome. You've got some who think he's just another prophet like Elijah and he's going to do miracles. So that, those kind of questions, there's all kinds of questions running around. And he says this to everybody, even the 12 and even those who trust him. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. He's tying it right back to the bookend on the other end. Listen and consider. Stop and think about what I'm saying. The parable and its lesson establishes Jesus' relationship with the crowds and with the religious leaders for the remainder of his time on planet Earth. So understand, he's, he, this, this parable right out of the gate is meant to illustrate what he's doing. You ever walk away from a lecture or maybe a sermon today, um, or a book or a billboard and go, I don't know what they're talking about. I know I have. Sometimes I've walked away from my own sermon wondering what I was talking about. Well, these people heard just a parable. I mean, they heard no explanation. The, the crowd, the Pharisees that were there on the seashore, they heard nothing other than a parable, a story, an agricultural story that they go, okay, what does that even mean? It's obvious. So think about it for a second. Try to. How would you react if you had just heard the parable? Never ever heard an explanation of it. How would you react to that? Would you be inquisitive? I need some more information. Let me go, let me go get some more information. Or would you be indifferent? Well, since I don't understand it, I'm not going to bother checking it out. No reason for me to trouble myself. Would you be angry? Why does he speak about agriculture when he's a carpenter? That doesn't make any sense. Or would you be confused? You know, a teacher should teach on our level, right? I don't know how many college professors have probably been told that. I didn't understand. You should teach on our level. No, the whole point is to raise your level. That's why I'm teaching you. But that's another whole story. Because even today, many hear the gospel. Many hear the gospel. They read the Bible, and they still miss the truth of it. They don't know that they have sinned against God, which is the truth of it, which is the key to it starting to make sense. You know, even when we try to explain it, and we use very, very elementary terms, we, we try to get rid of our Christianese, as I call it, our, our language that we speak in the church. We try to get rid of our idioms that we use in the church, baptized, born again, all those things that we try to kind of explain and define. Even that doesn't make a difference sometimes. They don't get it. They don't understand. Why? Because they're missing a secret. And that's what we're going to talk about next. One fact brings the whole message to light, and it's the way... God plans to save souls. I mean, this, this parable conveys four types of responses, but they don't even know what he's talking about because they don't have the secret. Point number two this morning, the secret of the responses to Jesus, verses 10 through 12. I want to read this because this is very hard to digest at times. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. He answered them. The secret of the kingdom of 
God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables. So that, now this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may, they, and yet, they, may, they may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. So, Jesus breaks from the crowd, him and his, his 12 disciples and, and some followers. And we know that there were other believers during Jesus' ministry. The Marys that we see at the tomb at the end, but also, you know, Matthias, who eventually takes Judas's place as one of the disciples, was, was with Jesus most of the time. John Mark, the guy who wrote this gospel, probably was there in the vicinity. And then the, the guy named Barsabbas Justice, who was a candidate for taking Judas's place, they had to be around Jesus for his ministry. That was one of the qualifications of, a, of selecting one of someone to take Judas's place. So we have other believers, we have the 12, and they asked for clarification about parables. Why parables, Jesus? Why are you doing this? Why are you using stories instead of teaching in principles? You know, like our scribes do, they just quote people that taught in a principle. This is a principle of this. Why are you telling us stories? Now, they were asking for clarification, and they were also, in a sense, passively <laughs> admitting, we don't get it. <laughs> we just don't understand, Jesus. What are you talking about here? They wanted to grasp the parable fuller, but they just didn't understand. And he answered, you have the secret. You have the secret or mystery. You can use that word. Your, your translation might use mystery. It's the same word in the Greek. Of the kingdom of God. You have the secret of the kingdom of God. They do not. You're inside. They're outside. What is this secret? Boy, are you ready? Because <laughs> it's, not, it's not mystical. It's not clandestine. It's not necessarily hidden. It's not some sort of special knowledge and a clue that you've got to decipher from Scripture. It's nothing. I mean, Jesus had shown himself clearly. I mean, he had... He had raised a man that was paralytic. He had healed leprosy. He'd restored many people to their health. So he had shown them the secret. And, and God said in his prophecy in Isaiah that he would send a Messiah as a suffering servant to provide atonement for sins and eternal life. So this is something they have in their Bible. The Pharisees, the crowd, everybody. They have it in their Bible. The truth that has now come to life in the man Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the secret. Jesus. Jesus is the secret. Now, when he's seen as just a man or just a teacher or just a miracle worker, he's not seen. He's not, the secret is not grasped by anybody, when they seem just as that, another prophet or something. See, Jesus unlocks the parables when one trusts him, <laughs> when one surrenders to him as Savior, that he's the, their Savior, that he is the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When you trust him, that's grasping the secret. Now, why is it a secret? Well, because without God's enlightenment... Without, without Jesus calling them, the 12 and the others that were there, calling them, they would never really understand it. Matter of fact, no one can, can accept this truth and understand the parable 
without God calling them and enlightening them in their mind and their heart. These people are on the inside. They're there because Jesus called them to be followers. And he gave them the spiritual mind to understand. <laughs> understand a little. Why did he do that? Because it's a mystery. It's a secret. And that's the way God decided to cloak it. He'd done it for centuries. So why are the outsiders left outside? Well, they don't see the kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming. They don't see it. They don't see it. They're looking and only wanting their version of a kingdom. You know, whether it's an earthly kingdom like David and Solomon or whether it's their own personal in their heart kingdom, I want what's good for me. See, the Pharisees had committed the unpardonable sin in uh, chapter 3, verse 29. They cannot, will not be accepted into the kingdom of God because they have, they have basically made it clear they don't want to be in the kingdom of God. And then the crowds, along with his family, kind of sought their own thing in, in ver, uh, chapter 3, verse 35, when Jesus said, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. They had kind of chosen their own path. So, but Jesus is pointing this rejection that you see in chapter 3. He's pointing it to what Isaiah faced in chapter 6 of Isaiah. If you want, you can turn over there. I'm going to read the passage in a second. But Isaiah chapter 6. Now we remember Isaiah. Most of us can quote a lot of it because Isaiah 6 is where Isaiah was called to be a prophet, a prophet of Israel. And he was called in a most glorious way. So he gets a vision. He gets a vision, if I can turn the page. He gets a vision of God. In his glory, and his train fills the temple, and there's cherubims flying everywhere. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a great display of God's magnificence. And then Isaiah realizes something. I am a dirty man. I am unclean lips. I have sin in my heart. I am, I am doomed because I'm standing before God. I'm seeing God in a sense. Now, he wasn't seeing the essence, the, the truth of God. He's seeing the essence of God. But an angel comes, takes a hot coal, puts it on Isaiah's lips. His sins are forgiven for the time being. And he's able to present himself to God. And then God says, who will we send? Who will go for me to the people to tell a message? And Isaiah throws up his hand. Me. I'll go. Here I am. Send me, Lord. And then we pick up in, chapter, in verse 9 of Isaiah 6. And he's just volunteered for this mission, but he really doesn't know anything other than, I'm going to go preach about God. And God says, and he replied, God replied, go, say to these people, keep listening, but, you do, not but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. So Isaiah has just volunteered for a fatal, futile mission. He's going to go preach to the children of Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel who are in rebellion against God and he's about to pronounce judgment on them. He's about to go preach to them and they are not going to understand a word he's saying. They're not going to listen to him. They're not going to respond. And he does that for the rest of of his life. He keeps preaching that message. Repent. Trust God. Turn back to God. Do what God commands. 
I, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I, I would have trouble knowing I'm going to a place and I've known missionaries that have done this, gone to a place and they didn't have converts for seven years or more, just continuing to, to preach God's word. But Isaiah did it. And, and what's interesting is God had already hardened their hearts to the point where they weren't going to hear Isaiah's message. But he was preparing their hearts for judgment. And this prophecy in Isaiah is temporarily fulfilled there in the remaining parts of the Old Testament because Assyria invades and takes Israel into exile. And they are judged and they are punished. And they didn't listen and they didn't hear. But now, right here in chapter 4 of Mark, in, in, in this parable, in this explanation of the parable, we see Jesus Christ fulfilling that prophecy for eternity. We see him fulfilling it, that, that he is going to use the rejection of the people, the rejection of the Pharisees, to bring about the redemption of his people. They're going to reject Jesus' message. The crowd is going to turn on Jesus and take him to the cross where he dies for those who are going to be redeemed. He saves them because God is using that rejection for his kingdom. And that's just the sovereign will of God playing out in front of us. Now, I struggled all week with why are these verses in the middle of this parable? Between the parable and the interpretation, why are they here? You could have put them somewhere else, God, and I could have taken it as a complete sermon by itself, but it's here for a reason. It happened in this order for a reason, and I believe this is the reason. The soils that refuse to grow the seed are those who cannot, no matter what, receive and believe God's word. I just believe that there are people like that in the world. And, and if you don't, look around. You've seen people rejected. You've seen people die in their rejection. God's always been an electing God. He elected Israel through Abraham out of a, a group, all the nations that were existing at that time. God has always been a selective God. And I don't know why he does it. I, someday I hope to understand, but it won't be on this side of eternity probably. I just know that it is for his glory. The point is, is that the souls who lose the word will not be redeemed. They will not accept it. It's God's sovereign hand at work. Because we need to understand something about the kingdom of God. It's a realm of judgment and redemption. It's not one or the other. And so any excuse that the world provides to God for why he should forgive them and let them into heaven won't suffice if it doesn't include Jesus. Because he's the secret. Any excuse, anything we try to offer to God and say, I'm good, God, I, you, you see me, right? I've been doing good. None of that's going to work if you don't trust Jesus. Because it's all of God. It's all of grace. It's all of Jesus. It's not of anything we do. It won't justify us before God. So God is just in his condemning them. He's just. He's not unjust. He's not unfair. He's not to blame for their rejection of God's word. That is their choice. They're not forced to disbelieve. They want to disbelieve. That's one of the things that's hard to understand is we know, we, we want, we know what we have and we want to share it and we want people to believe it and we wonder why they don't want it. But that doesn't change anything. We keep sharing. See, the secret to the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the King of Kings. He's regenerating our souls and minds to hear his truth. That is the secret of the kingdom of God. 
the secret to mystery. Here's some examples of how this plays out. Someone who's an insider, someone who knows Christ as their Lord and Savior. Have you seen someone that's a sinner that's they're worse than bad? I mean, I've seen some criminals that's like, oh my gosh, how could God ever save them? Never, they had never had a thought ever about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, someone hands them a Bible and starts talking to them in prison even about Jesus. The light comes on, their mind is opened, and they accept Christ, and they change. And we're shocked. Matter of fact, we're even skeptical at times. It's like, but we, if we believe in God, we believe he can do that. That's an example of someone who looks like they're going to be on the outside for eternity, winds up inside. And then you got the outsiders, that some of them have been raised in Christian homes. Some of them read their Bible. Some of them memorize their Bible. Some of them do good things at church. Do good things in ministry, and then they turn away forever. And the reason probably is they never understood why Jesus was important to their soul. I can't explain it, except that it's God's will that it happens that way. But that's kind of some examples of just how, how out of control it is for us to be saved. It's not, it's not of anybody but God. It has been a mystery or a secret since the fall of man. In chapter 3 of Genesis, the crusher of Satan's head is now revealed in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says to the Colossians. He says, the mystery or the secret, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, 26-27. Without Christ in you, you'll never understand the parables or the word. Christ is the secret, and only some will understand what he's saying. Now, if you've been around Christianity much, you know that the doctrine of election is kind of in here, okay? And sometimes I found people don't like that doctrine because it makes God selective. Well, we're not going to dive into that today. If you've got questions about that, you can come talk to me because it is a true and sincere doctrine. But Jesus really is the point of this parable and the point of this passage. He is the secret to understanding this. So before you get frustrated with this or, or start doubting your own beliefs, let me assure you of some things, okay, this morning. First of all, if you understood or understand your need for a Savior, for forgiveness, then you're on the inside. If you're trusting Jesus Christ, you have the secret of the kingdom. So that's first. Second, neither you nor I know who will be those who accept or reject God's word, who accept or reject the secret, Jesus Christ. We can't predict those who refuse or accept. We can't. We don't know. So we don't need to start trying. Our job is not to discern who is elect and who isn't. Our job is to preach the word, the gospel, and carry it everywhere. The third thing I want you to remember is that God's sovereign and his sovereign, all-encompassing will is beyond our mental understanding. When we try to put our human, our human designs to God's mind, we're, we're messing up. When we try to think and say, well, why is God doing this? Because we wouldn't do this. Well, we do it in some senses, but we can't fully grasp what he decrees on such things. And, and I know myself, I'm always, well, I don't see how that's fair. Well, nothing in the Bible says God is 
fair. He's just. And there's a big difference a lot of times in that, especially when we're using our definition of fair. God's judgment and salvation are perfect and righteous. He saves by grace, not our works or our worth. That's how he saves. None of us deserve it. We deserve punishment. But he chooses who will receive his son, and he gave his son to those of us who are on the inside. Those outside, they don't wish to be inside. And that's something we find troubling sometimes. They don't wish to be inside. God doesn't force them to believe or disbelieve. They're kind of like a person locked in a room who doesn't want to get out. Even though they're locked in, they don't feel like, I don't care, I'm, I'm locked in, I'm fine. I mean, that's, that's, that's hard for us to grasp because if any of us was locked in a room, we'd want to get out. Even if we didn't have anywhere to go, we'd want to get out. And then lastly, number four, this is not an excuse to not preach and proclaim Jesus Christ, okay? So just because God has determined who he will save, which is beyond us, it's not, it's not an excuse or reason to not preach and proclaim Jesus Christ, to not do missions. He is the Lord and Savior, and we know the secret, so we need to tell the secret. We don't know who the bad soils are. We don't know who's in thorns and and rocky soil and pathways. We don't know that. So we go and we tell and we make disciples of all the nations. That's what we were told to do. Any person who will listen and consider the word of God. That's what we do. We speak the secret of the kingdom until Jesus Christ returns. That is our mission. That is our mission, period. So let's look at the interpretation. I mean, the causes for the responses comes to light in this interpretation. And like I said, I love it when Jesus gives the interpretation because it really takes a load off of my shoulders. The response is explained by Jesus, verses 13 through 20. I'm just going to walk through these with a little application for each one. So Jesus asked them about the parable, and he stresses that it's important to listen and consider this parable. You know what listen and consider equates to? Meditate. Ooh, we don't like that word sometimes. We get a little spaced out by meditate. No, listen and consider. I spend a lot of time sitting at my desk in my office, staring out the window at McDonald's and going, what does that mean, God? What am I supposed to say about that? That's meditating. That's considering and listening to what God's saying. So, but Jesus is making the point here. If they fail at this parable... It sounds like he's rebuking them, and he is a little bit, but he says if they fail at this parable, none of the other parables will make sense. So he's kind of reproving them to try harder. Okay, you, did you guys even give it some thought? I mean, that's kind of what I, I gathered from this. Do you not understand? Did you even give this a, a try? You've been around me for maybe a year at this point. You didn't, you didn't even try to understand that? So he's, he's kind of pushing them, and then he gives them the answer. Okay, okay, I got I to gotta spell it out for them because they need the answer. So Jesus interprets the parable. And like I said, we don't need to come up with any other explanations as to who the farmer is or who the seed is or what the thorns are. I mean, Jesus gives it all to us. The sower isn't defined. But at this present time, Jesus has put himself in that position. He's the sower. He's the one going around, as we've seen in the first three chapters of Mark, preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching throughout the villages in Galilee and even beyond Galilee. And he's going to go beyond Galilee in both directions, east and west, before it's over. So Jesus is the sower, but we, be, we get to be the sower now. We're the sower now. 
And I'll explain that here in a little bit later. And the seed is the word. It's the gospel. It's the whole counsel of God that explains the redemption plan that God had from eternity past. How he's going to save souls. So that's the seed. That's the seed that's being scattered, wherever it's being scattered. So the seed on the path, Satan removes the word. How does Satan remove the word? The world's distractions do it all by themselves. It's easy. They don't let the truth stay put for any period of time. Or the person just dismisses it because we're just some religious nutcases and we don't, you know, that message doesn't apply to me. We just dismiss it. Their hearts and minds are already hard to it. They're, they're unrelenting. They're unresponsive. They don't see any reason to listen to the gospel. So Satan snatches it out of the, their mind. Because many, many people have heard a clear presentation of the gospel. There's no doubt. They, but they never will listen to it. They never receive it. They never receive this message. God is going to punish sin forever. Jesus saves you from that punishment. They never hear that. And that's the essence of the gospel in, in, in what it means to our hearts and souls. The seed on the rocky soil. These people receive it with an earthly joy. It's really kind of a happiness. They're happy that forgiveness is available, but they just don't understand why they need it. They don't really fully grasp why they need forgiveness. So there's no permanent latching onto it. And then distress comes, as Jesus explains. Distress comes by, by the sun-scorching life of planet Earth. Okay, So things that happen, and it wearies them. They can't stand the heat of living out their faith. So persecution, ridicule, threats of retribution, it scorches their faith. And our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now are being scorched, but they're staying strong because their roots, roots are deep. But that's the kind of stuff that, that we see people that just kind of fade away because they heard it, they thought it was a good idea, and then over time, life gets in the way, life overcomes it, they put other priorities in place, and it just it wrecks it. They want a peaceful earthly life. They, they don't want that persecution, so... Um, Satan, again, wrecks their understanding of it. They really don't understand the eternal life that this word affords them. They resent it, they resist it, and they push on people who claim to do it, and that's part of the persecution that comes. See, standing for righteousness that's based on God's word will always receive wrath from somebody. Somebody doesn't like it. And that's, Jesus promised that. So these souls die to avoid distress. And then there's the seeds and the thorns, the worries. What worries? They're surviving the expectations of humanity. So many times people are worried about what people think about them or what people want them to do or what they think people think they want them to do. It's just, it, it, we get wrapped up. The fear of man creates this stress or satisfying our addictions feeds our worry. See, wealth, wealth which is one of the things that he mentions here, wealth it causes us to pursue things and more things than it can deliver. Because, you know what? Eternal peace is not for sale. You, no matter how much money you got, you can't buy eternal peace. Riches and greed come, become slave masters, driving one to give all their energy in their life to that. Greed, money, pursuit. Listen, sin, sin promises more than it can deliver. It costs you more than you can pay, and it will carry you farther than you ever wanted to go. 
That's why we need to put our, keep our guards up. And then he mentions lusting for things that wealth can't deliver, trying to gain pleasures or promises by any means possible, any means necessary. All these enter the heart, soul, and mind and take the strength of a person. And you know, if you remember the, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, these things that he's talking about here are meant to try to take that away from you. And that's what happens. Their heart, soul, mind, and strength gets enslaved to pursuing worldly things. They deprive the word of God of, for, of any thought or attention. They occupy the whole soul and they leave no dirt for the seed to grow in. So in these first three souls, Jesus implies a rejection of the truth, a rejection of the word at a point in time. So I don't want you to think that some soil won't ever be ready again. Someday it might be ready. Someday the soil might be prepared by God to hear. So we don't know. That's one of the beauties of not knowing. We just keep sowing. So we keep sowing and let God do the growing. Okay, that's what we do. Now, the seed's in the good soil. Hopefully that's most of us in here this morning. If it's not, we can talk afterwards. But it is the soil that's free. The good soil is free from all the other three impediments. Path, thorns, rocks. It's free of that. At least in majority of it. We can probably delve into that in, in a different sermon. But, but God the Father has prepared that soil. And the context of the parable implies that the good soil was prepare, prepared by someone stronger than us. It's not something we did. And they respond to it. They hear it. They listen. They consider it. They consider it as one who needs it. And then they respond. They welcome it as a much-needed soothing for their soul on planet Earth. They know it, it has something they need for the health of their soul and the peace of eternity. Because they know their place before God. See, they know that they have sins that need to be forgiven. They've known that. They recognize that. And God will save you by Jesus no matter what you've done. And if you know that, you just have to believe that. And then they produce. Boy, this, everybody likes to spend time talking about this production. Well, what's the production that happens in a soul that's the good soil, that accepts the word of God, that welcomes it, that hears it, that considers it? There's changes. Changes by the gospel. It produces results. It produces changes of life and behavior, okay? It, it may not be big changes that everybody sees, but, but a lot of times it's changes of priorities. Our priorities change. Our, our worry of wealth and want and, and all that goes away because we, didn't know, we know where our eternal security lies in God. And the size of the production in the parable implies that the change is, is significant enough. Maybe not for everybody to notice, but it's significant. And at least to us, we, we realize we don't need that anymore. We don't want that anymore. We give up this for God, whatever it may be. And, and, and it's different with a lot of people. Obviously, we give up the sin that the Bible outlines. We, we put that to de death, and we try to do that. We're not all perfect at it, but we try. So what do we count? I mean, we, Jesus goes... Some produce 30, 60, 100 times. That's more than any crop would have been expected to produce in the first century Palestine. So that's not something normal. Jesus is making a hyperbole there, an exaggeration that, that you count something. Here's what you can count. Count the ways you can live differently for the Lord. Look for the ways and count those 
You don't have to brag about them. I'm not going, don't want to give you that impression. Count the changes that God brings to your demeanor. If, you're, if you were a grumpy person, now you're not so grumpy. If you were self-centered a little too much, maybe you're a little less self-centered. Those are just some examples. But we don't need to count how many people we lead to Christ because you know what? You're not in control of that. You're not. As much as I would like to be, we are not. We're not in control of it, but we can count how many people we share the gospel with. How many seeds have you thrown out there? There's some studies out there that's pretty sad how many evangelical Christians have shared their faith with someone in the last 10 years. It's, I didn't look them up because I, I didn't want to depress me anymore. But it's, we need to share our faith, and that's what we need to count. And it's talking about fruit here. So what is the fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is one, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those nine fruit, man, if those are coming out of your life, you have been changed. And you may not express them perfectly and consistently and every time, but the fruit of a life that's more eternally focused is what you'll see. That's one of the fruits you'll see. Fruit of using your resources, your energy, your time and effort for the kingdom of God. See, Jesus explained and interpreted this parable to them to prepare them for the rest of the parables. And we're going to get into that next week. But it's also for our souls and minds to understand, to have ears to hear and listen and consider the kingdom of God. Because Jesus has told a very simple, but it's a very profound parable here. But the secret to understanding it is Jesus. It's not anything we can come up with. See, Jesus knew he was the secret, and these responses of the gospel, he knew they would happen. Why? Because he's God incarnate. He knows those kind of things. Now, most of us have heard this parable used in terms of promoting evangelism, you know, and, and, it, and it does. It, 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 I've said it several times. We get to sow the seed now, so you get to throw the seeds of the secret that you have inside you. So it is used for that, but I think Jesus told it to show his followers also that and mostly that he is the secret to receiving the kingdom of God. Without Jesus Christ, none of the kingdom of God and the way he's going to redeem souls makes sense. Who would send someone as their son to die for humanity who, who doesn't care about Jesus, doesn't care about that? That's the secret. And Jesus used this parable to teach them that. And after Christ rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, he left us one commission to tell the world the gospel, to go into every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue. Regardless of these predictable responses, we are not called to be soil inspectors, okay? You're not called to go out there and try to figure out which is a good soil and which is three of the bad ones. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be sowers. As believers in Jesus Christ, that we, we have the secret, but we're not meant to keep it secret. We're meant to tell it. So believer, that's your calling. That's your calling. Find ways to tell people about Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, but you want to, it starts like this. Faith. Faith trusts, believes in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that that act will cover your sins forever. That believing and trusting in him will save you from that eternal damnation, condemnation that we talked about. And you believe that without reservation. 
You don't say, well, I'm going to give up this much or I'm going to believe it this much or I'm going to, I'm going to believe this and then these ideas with my, my ideas with this. You can't do that. You believe it without reservation. You deny yourself, your ideas, your concepts of heaven, your concepts of God, your concepts of Jesus, and you go to this book right here to find out the truth about God. And you repent. You turn away from all those things and you turn to Christ because that's who you're supposed to trust. It's all about Jesus. He's the secret. Let's pray. Father, I praise you. I thank you for this time. I thank you that you did send your son. And many times we want to wrestle with why people don't believe and why certain things happen and why people struggle. But we need to be grateful through it all to replace our questioning with gratitude and thankfulness because you are a God who saves because you decided to do that and we desperately need that salvation thank you Jesus for your life your death your burial your resurrection and now you're sitting at the right hand of God intervening for those of us who have trusted you thank you we pray all this in Jesus name amen well, let's stand and sing about having a closer walk with Jesus.